Good morning. Right on. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Ross, for leading us through that. Thank you, gentlemen, for all your work and service to us here. <clears throat> that story, if I can, just for a second, the prodigal son. Uh, you know, there's a book called The Tale of Two Sons out there. If you ever get a chance to read that, great book. I think it's John MacArthur. Don't quote me on that. And another one, um, Prodigal God, by Tim Keller. Amazing stories to read that, uh, if I may, just for a second, because it actually ties in later, is how the father's response, you know, that son, the younger son comes and says, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Take me as your servant. It's almost like he interrupts. The father interrupts the son and says, we're not going to do this in your way. We're not going to do this the way you think we're going to do this. We're going to do this my way. And uh, intervenes. <clears throat> I love that. And the older brother is uh, self-righteous and won't even go in. And uh, one of the things that Tim Keller says is we need to not only repent of our unrighteousness as the younger son, but we need to repent of our self-righteousness as the older son. Isn't that true? <clears throat> I am super uh, excited. Oh, I should totally introduce myself like I've never been here before. I think I did it maybe earlier. If you weren't here, my name is Mike Owens. And I'm super thankful to be here, and uh, thank you for the privilege to uh, continue worshiping with you. You know, I think that we get it messed up when we think that we sing songs, and then that's when the worship stops. That's totally not true. I hope you see that, that we are going to continue worshiping in the proclamation of God's word, that we can worship together and um, remember he is the one who gave us this word to study, and uh, we want to worship and glorify him in, in the so doing. <clears throat> I uh, hope you can turn to 1 John 5 with me. We're going to read that together, and I, I hope you'll see that uh, if you haven't figured that out yet, we are uh, committed to the Word, that we are submitted to the Word, that uh, this is our authority. And I ask you to turn there to help keep me accountable and hold me to that authority. So uh, if you would, would you pray with me as we come before His Word? Father God, we just love you. We thank you for the opportunity and privilege uh, to worship you together corporately um, as, a, as a body. And we uh, thank you that we get to do that. It is an honor to honor you, to lift your name on high as we sang earlier. And Father, we um, pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would mold us into the people that you want us to be, and that your word would be our guide. Um, Father, you are our authority, and therefore your word is our authority. Thank you that we get to study it. Now I pray that you would allow us to um, cast our cares at your feet, because you care about them even more, that we may um, worship you unhindered. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First John 5, starting with chapter 1, we're going to go, or excuse me, verse 1, we're going to go through verse 4. <clears throat> Would you read it with me, please? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
I'm going to start with some questions, and then we're going to come back to them in a little bit, but I want you to kind of listen to them and put them on the back burner. Who are we praising for our belief? Who is getting the glory for our actions of belief in this life? When you share how you are saved from God's wrath, what kind of words do you use? When you ask about somebody else's testimony of their salvation, how do you ask? Is that important? Am I just splitting hairs that don't need to be split? Let's look at the text and come back to these questions. Would you come with me in verse 1 here? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ must realize and remind themselves that they have been reborn into the family of God. Before, and my word's going to be real important here, before someone believes they have been born of God. They are sons. They have an inheritance. They are in right standing. They are justified. If we, so in this verse, watch this, if we observe ourselves believing that Jesus is the Christ, we can also observe that we have been rebirthed, which is to say we have been renewed which is to say that our hearts have been regenerated. These terms are synonymous in Scripture. Not if we believe, then we're born of God, but because we are born of God, we believe. Our belief is evidence of the work God has previously done in our lives. John has been repeating this throughout his letter, so hold your place there in chapter 5 and go with me to Chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. I'm going to go fast now. Go to um, chapter, excuse me, continue on just a little bit down the road in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And in chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And in chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, this is a fun song we get to sing in Sunday school. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Again, belief is an evidence of a renewed or regenerated heart. Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, excuse me, whoever, who anyone, eh? 
Here we go, ready. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ, I can't even get it right. Let me do it one more time, are you ready? Because this is important. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And the second part of that, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And if we find ourselves loving the Father, then we will find ourselves loving Jesus who has been born of him. You know, Pharisees claimed to be children of God, but did not love his one and only son, Jesus. In our language, we have some if and thens going on, and um, they're, they're conditional statements. Um, so if I can just kind of make this clear, because it gets a little backwards, because the then comes before the if in this statement, if I may say so. So if I said, if I eat a gallon of ice cream, then I will gain weight. Okay, that's a action and a result. But we can also say, I gained weight by or from eating a gallon of ice cream. Don't recommend that, by the way. All right. Do you see how that gets a little, the result came first and then the action? Do you guys hear that? But we can say by or from real easy. I, or I could say, I gained weight because I ate a gallon of ice cream. Are you tra- tracking with me? I'm going to make this a little more clear as well as, as we go. Verse 2, if you will. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. How do we know that we love the children of God? What is the evidence that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments? I don't want you to get off on this observe um, tangent. Um, to keep, to observe, carrying out means to obey. In the Greek, it's poiomen. It equals to do the commandments. I love that. To do the commandments. <clears throat> Hold your finger there. Go with me to Matthew. Matthew 22. Verse 34 through 40. We're not going to read it all, but I want you to mark it. That's an important uh, piece that I want you to see. <clears throat> it's where Jesus is questioned, what is the greatest commandment? And they're trying to trip him up a little bit. And uh, if you ever get a chance to listen to a man named Bodhi Bauckham, I strongly recommend it. He, uh, he uses this passage or, and, um, or teaches on this passage, I should, should say. And uh, he says, when Jesus was questioned about God, which are the greatest of commandments, Jesus says, and you can read it there at the end, he says, love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, Right? And Vodi Bakum does a good job of saying, well, if, you, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the, the first four are about how we love God. Okay? And five through ten is how we love our neighbors, right? Because not murdering your neighbor is showing love to them, by the way. Okay? So, so he says, when Jesus is questioned by these people, what is the greatest commandments? Vodi Bakum says that Jesus replies, well, I'd have to say, one through four, followed closely by five through ten. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we need to be carrying out those commandments. That that is our response uh, to him, that when we love God and obey his commandments. By this, I'm sorry, in verse two, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So keep that in the back of your mind when we go into verse three. For this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. How do we show love to God? How do we show love to God? We keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Hold your finger there. Go to John, not First John, but the book of John in verse four, chapter 14, verse 21 through 24. You're going to see Jesus modeled this for us. He modeled how we show love to God, that we keep his commandments. In John 14, 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. Go down the road a little further in verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Back to chapter 5, 1 John 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus is modeling that for us. Not burdensome. Oh man, I hope this rings true and you get this. It's so amazing. This is transformational that being a child of his, he gives us the desire to obey. We want to obey. Therefore, obedience is not burdensome. Even difficult things are not burdensome when you want to do them. I couldn't think of a better example of this in first service, so I'm just going to go with it, so bear with me. Changing diapers, okay? Changing diapers is quite the burden, quite the chore. Changing other people's kids' diapers is quite a burden and quite a chore. I don't know why that is. You know, my wife and I have had this discussion. Changing my nephew's diapers is different. It's, it's a bigger issue for Mike Owens. Maybe you're okay with that. I don't know. But changing my own kids' diapers, it's not quite the burden. Well, I, I have a desire for them to have a clean bottom. Okay? Uh, and I, I, so my desire for a clean bottom, it really does. It helps me to get over that such a burden. Okay? Now, I'm sure there's a million other better examples out there that you're thinking of, so forgive me. But the point is, when we desire to do those things, it's less of a burden. When we desire to love, when you desire to act, when you desire to obey, when you desire to worship, when you desire to serve, It's not such a burden. Even the difficult things are not burdensome when you want to do them. First, we need to realize that He, God, is the one who has given us the desire to obey. Folks, I'm a recovering legalist. I was aware of Scripture that said I was saved by grace, but I reasoned 
that that was just for my salvation. I wrongly thought that since I was a Christian, I needed to obey God so he would bless me or allow good things to happen to me or keep bad things from happening to me. I set up a list of things that I should and should not do. My motivation for obeying was to sway God one way or the other. When my children came along, <clears throat> I really began to wrestle with this. And I, and I started to wrestle with why should my children obey me? I was convinced that the reason was the same reason for that answer was the same reason that I need to obey God. So I struggled with that question for a couple years. I started with, you know, my children should obey me because I'm their dad. I'm stronger. I can be louder. I'm smarter. Sometimes. And they should obey because I said so. But I kept coming back to verses like verse 3. You know, in a really challenging moment, a friend you know, we used to live in Bakersfield, took me to Coconut Joe's, and we had lunch together, and he challenged me uh, with Scripture and showed me that my words were sounding like I was trying to manipulate the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That somehow my actions or inactions could sway God. None of us have that power. And that's not what we're created for. We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Another challenge came from this book right here that I've been reading with a small group. It's called Humility. It's got a subtitle, True Greatness, by uh, C.J. Mahaney. In this book, Mahaney is, uh, well, directing his readers to see that our salvation process is humbling. Our salvation is humbling. That we are saved not because of anything we had done, which would be pretty arrogant and prideful. If I may, I'd love to read a, a piece of this with you. Again, this is called Humility and <clears throat> True Greatness. He says, We were acted upon by God before we ever responded to Him. Paul never minimizes or dismisses human responsibility. But the accent and emphasis, both in his writings and throughout Scripture, is upon the sovereignty of God, and out of it comes his call, his divine summons to which we respond. The fundamental explanation of our conversion was not that we were wiser or morally superior to others in choosing God, but that God chose to have mercy on us and intervened in our lives, revealing our completely, excuse me, revealing our need for his provision of the gospel. Our salvation is owed completely to the sovereign grace of God. I can fully and personally agree with these words of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. 
for Mr. Spurgeon, for me and you, to look back upon our conversion and explain fully and honestly how it came about, this fact must emerge. We were called. God's prior activity has brought us to where we are today. You know, opponents or people who disagree with the doctrine of election tend to argue that it is an arrogant doctrine. But it is completely humbling. That in spite of our sin, in spite of our deadness, in spite of our enmity with God, he saved us. That's humbling. I'd really like to let you know that if you struggle with this concept as I did, please know that this is a good place to struggle and wrestle with this concept. Country Oaks should be the place that we can meet and reason together with Scripture as our authority. This is a great place to do that. Scripture teaches that we are freed to obey out of a, out of a desire to show love to our Father who's in heaven. When we obey, it is a response to what he has already done for us. Our obedience is not in order to earn something, but our obedience is evidence of the change God has made in us. Can I share a couple songs with you? Psalm 20, verse 4, if you want to write this down or go look for it. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Again, God gives us the desires of our hearts. Not whatever we want, but when we have a desire to obey him, a desire to serve him, a desire to glorify him, this verse is a reminder that those desires came from him to begin with. So when you have those desires, those good desires, those right desires, you should pause and worship him for giving us those desires. When I find myself obeying, when I find myself desiring to obey, when I find myself desiring to love, desiring to serve, I don't stop and pat myself on the back and say, good job, Mike, right on. No, I need to stop and remember who gave me that desire and worship him. There's no boasting. There's no boasting. We boast in the Lord and what he has done. Okay? Then, in order to obey, we need to know what the commandments are. They're found in Scripture. We can study and we can learn what the Lord commands of us. You know, one of the First verses that we memorized when I was growing up was Psalm 119.11. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what we study, we learn, we remember those things, we memorize those things so that we might not sin against him, so that we may obey. When we desire to follow his commands, it is freeing. And they're no longer a burden. The purpose of the law is to show us our need for Christ. If you see 
as you study that you are not able to obey the law, you're correct. And you're in good company. The purpose of the law is to show us our need for Christ. Would you look at verse 4 in 1 John chapter 5 and continue on. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Folks, this is not for us to boast about. Our faith is not what we boast in. But the object of our faith is what we boast about, Jesus and his work. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. May may I boast about what God has done? You know, throughout Scripture, the creator of heaven and earth has revealed himself to us as holy, as perfect, as just, as love, as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were created without sin and were in perfect communion with the creator of heaven and earth. They were tempted by the serpent that they could be like God and disobey God's commands. Or, and did disobey God's commands, excuse me. They were sinful and separated in their sin and were, were to suffer the pains of being spiritually dead and to suffer the pains of physical death. In Genesis also, they were told that the seed of the woman would be the Savior, and that seed was sought ever since. In the Old Testament, God has given instructions for worship and atonement for sins, through the blood of unblemished animals. These were a foretelling or a picture, Scripture says a foreshadow of the the seed who would be the perfect unblemished sacrifice and would blot out our sin. Because of our heritage of sinners, we are born into sin and are sinful. In Romans 6.23, it says the wages of our sin is spiritual death. God's wrath will be poured out on those who do not repent and believe. That's the bad news. Good news is, the seed, the second and more perfect Adam, the perfect Lamb of God, is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, fully God, fully man. He was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He lived a perfect life and was crucified on a cross. He resurrected from the dead three days later, just as he said he would, and showed himself to over 500 people. He ascended into heaven to send the Holy Spirit and to prepare a place for his chosen people. Jesus will return for his bride and judge the living and the dead. We see in Ephesians 2 that when God regenerates a heart, Because of his grace, that person is given the gift of faith, not because of any good works we have done. And our response is we put the faith he has given us in the person and work of Christ. We repent or turn away from our sins and believe with the gift of faith that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
Jesus' perfect life is counted toward us and God's wrath was poured out on Christ instead of those who believe. He suffered in our place. He saved us from the wrath that we deserve. You can see that in Romans 5.9. Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus will return again as the righteous judge. One day, all individuals will bow our knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. We will either confess with surrender and worship as believers or confess with disdain and contempt toward God. Let's go back and look at those questions I asked you early, earlier. Who's getting the glory for our action of belief in this life? Folks, I have failed at this. And I would ask you, where did that belief come from? And hopefully by now you'll see our, our faith is a gift from God. When you share how you were saved from God's wrath, what kind of words do you use? Do your words honor and glorify God who saved you, or do they honor you and your actions? I encourage you to think clearly about this, about how you share your testimony. Be sure that your words communicate clearly that God intervened in your life while you were yet a sinner as Romans 5.8 reminds us. Be sure that your words communicate clearly that God regenerated your heart. He rebirthed you. When you ask someone else about their testimony, how do you ask? I encourage you to ask, when did the Lord intervene in their life? Or when did they realize God was giving them a desire to surrender their life? Or when did they first realize their need for Christ? Is it that important? God's glory is of the utmost importance. We're given the charge to honor and lift up his name among the nations. God's glory is of the utmost importance. I'd like to close with a passage from Future Grace by John Piper, he does a great job of summarizing this and um, teeing off on verse 4. So if I may, I'd love to read this with you. It says, what is plain in these verses, he's speaking of 1 John 5, 1 through 4. What is plain in these verses is that being born again, being born of God, turns the commandments of God from being burdensome to being our delight. How does that work? How does being born of God make the commandments of God a delight rather than a burden. The Apostle John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith in 1 John 5, 4. In other words, the way that being born of God overcomes the worldly burdensomeness of God's commandments is by begetting faith. This is, first, this is confirmed in 1 John 5, 1, which says literally, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Faith is the evidence that we have been born of God. We do not cause ourselves to be born again by deciding to believe. God creates our willingness to believe by causing us to be born again. As Peter said in his first letter, God caused us to be born again to a living hope in 1 Peter 1, 3. Our living hope 
or faith in future grace is the work of God through new birth. So when John says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and then adds, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, in 1 John 5, 4, I take him to mean that God enables us, by the new birth, to overcome the world. That is, to overcome our worldly disinclination to keep God's commandments. The new birth does this by creating faith, which evidently includes a disposition to be pleased by God's commandments, rather than put off by God's commandments so that they feel burdensome. Therefore, it is faith that overcomes our inborn hostility to God and His will and frees us to keep His commandments and to say with the psalmist, I delight to do your will, O my God, in Psalm 40, verse 8. Would you pray with me? Father God, we do just love you and thank you for this word. Thank you for your scriptures that you have preserved for us, that we may study, that we may learn your law, that we are unable to attain, that we may learn of our need for saving from your wrath, which is in Christ Jesus alone. Thank you for teaching us through your word of Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross, his conquering death and sin and rising again, for allowing us to have the hope of his return. Father, I pray that you would continue to soften our hearts and mold us into the people you want us to be. And that we would, with our words, with our actions, honor, worship, and glorify you in all that we do. It's for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day.